The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show, Great Escapes, Part 1. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. In this Great Escapes mini-series, we're going to look at some of the closest calls that RNZF aircrew have had, and how ejector seats have saved their lives. This first episode is a story that goes right back to 1957, and only the second RNZF ejection, with Air Commodore Geoffrey Hubbard. I'd like to welcome Air Commodore Geoffrey Hubbard to the show. Hello, Geoff. G'day. Welcome to the show. Thank you. You're the oldest living ejection seat, uh, oh, what would you call it, ejectee. Um, there was only one before you in the RNZF, I believe, and that was only a, a few months before you? If you're referring to Mike Palmer, yes, a couple yes. of months, I think it was, before my ejection. Right, right. I'll just um, I'll just start it a little earlier than that. Uh, where did you where did you grow up, and um, when did you join the air force? Just just briefly. Oh, okay. Um, uh, I started off i was born in wellington the family moved to blenheim during world war ii uh, so i was um, uh, raised at schools in blenheim uh, my training in the air force was a little unusual and that at that time and we're now talking shortly after the war around uh, the early 1950s um, there was the opportunity to get trained at RAF Cranwell, still being a member of the RNJF, but they were spending sending two people a year to train at the RAF College at Cranwell okay. in England, which was a third, two, just on a three-year course. So I got one of those and started off at Cranwell in uh, early 1955. Okay. Before the, before that, I'd uh, had very little flying at all. I'd done some tiger moth flying on a uh, uh, on a scholarship at home, but uh, at Cranwell I flew both the uh, Chipmunk, which was a uh, a small trainer, and the Bolton Paul Balliol. The Balliol was uh, quite a large trainer, built after World War II, side by side was intended to be powered by a Rolls-Royce Mamba, but uh, they couldn't make it work properly. So uh, it was eventually powered by leftover uh, Rolls-Royce Merlins from the war. Wow. Um, so that was what I did my advanced training on in England. Then I came back, uh, was uh, checked out on Harvard's, and I mean checked out, they... Uh, Flying training was spread over such a period at Cranwell that from experience, they wanted to make sure that uh, I'd learned what I should do. Yeah. And then after that, I uh, was sent to Ohakia in late 56 or mid 56 to train on the Vampire. And then from then, uh, from there, went up to um, Singapore in late 1956. Okay. All right. And uh, you were with number 14 squadron up in Singapore. Correct. 14, 
was part of the Commonwealth Strategic Reserve. Uh, it had been previously based in Cyprus uh, as part of the Middle East Air Force. But during 1955, it was transferred to Singapore for a period of three years. It operated out of Tanger, which is uh, a old British airfield, but was also used by the Japanese during World War II. And at Tanger, we had uh, uh, 14 squadron flying the Venoms Mark I, number 60 squadron RAF, which was flying the Venom Mark IV, and number one squadron Australian Air Force, which uh, had Lincoln bombers. Oh, yes. Yep. So can you tell me, um, was it much of a progression to go from the Vampire onto the Venom? Was it much of a different aircraft to fly? Well, yay and nay. As you indicate, it was a, um, a development of the Vampire. Uh, the chief difference, I suppose, would be the power plant. It was a ghost engine, which was a new one as compared with the Goblin from the, uh, the Vamp. Yep. And it had 5,000 pounds of static thrust against 3,000 pounds. So uh, it was a lot more powerful. Right. The Venom was a bit larger than the Vamp. Um, it had a partly swept wing. Uh, the leading edge was swept anyway, yeah. and the wing was a lot thinner than a vampire, the cross-section. So uh, that meant that uh, it could go faster, but it also meant that it could carry less fuel on the wing, and so it had tip tanks uh, for carrying extra fuel out there. Right. It also, because the undercarriage was retracted into the wing, uh, the tyres on which the Venom uh, operator were quite small and thin. And so that itself brought in a few uh, extra problems. Flying the, van the Venom in Singapore, well, probably the first thing that comes to mind was the heat. Um, if the aircraft was sitting out, well, they all they were always sitting out on a disused runway. But if it had been the aircraft you were flying had been sitting there without a cover over the cockpit, then the uh, uh, the seat, which was water filled at the top, became very hot and very uncomfortable to sit on. Right. Um, the cooling system in the Vampire you couldn't turn it on until after you got airborne, and so. It got pretty warm in the cockpit. It was always uh, you taxied with the, uh, the canopy open. Uh, and the aim, of course, was to get the thing airborne as quickly as you could, and so you could turn the air conditioning on. The air con itself was fairly primitive. Um, when you first turned it on, it, uh, you got a blast of cold air, but you also got a lot of condensation. Right. And uh, the water flying everywhere, and uh, you could not have the best visibility to start with, but that soon cleared. The performance of the aircraft was a lot better than the Vampire, even in the heat. And uh, uh, time to height, for example, was uh, better than the A4 uh, could, could uh, ever achieve, with both aircraft being designed for ground attack primarily. Okay. The... Um, the Venom did not have a, uh, a pressure oxygen system. It just had the, uh, the ordinary oxygen turned on above 10,000 feet. And we were reliant upon the cockpit pressurization uh, to keep things usable. If the aircraft was above 35,000 feet, then uh, you were re reliant upon the aircraft pressurization to keep breathing. And uh, if anything happened above that altitude, uh, you just could not breathe in enough oxygen. And so uh, you'd fairly quickly lose consciousness. And so there were an obvious scramble to get the thing down if you could before uh, that uh, occurred. Right. Um, the VAMP had a maximum speed of about uh, Mach 0.79, but the uh, Venom could go faster than that, got up to about 0.86 before compressibility uh, hit it, both on okay. the wings and on the fuselage. 
and uh, with all the controls, of course, behind the uh, the pressure waves, uh, difficult. It was difficult or even impossible to control the aircraft. And there was one training exercise, uh, which one normally did only once, though I, I was aware that there were some who did it more than once, was to take the aircraft up to 45,000 feet and then perform what was known as the death dive of uh, at 45,000 roll it inverted, pull down to vertically pointing straight toward the ground at full power. The aircraft would accelerate to 0.86 and uh, then go out of control. And nothing you could do with any of the controls had any effect at all. And the normal method of, of handling this was then to uh, power off the engine and during the time that it took to get down to 25,000 feet you could do nothing but just sit there wow. and then at 25,000 uh, with the sick hard back it would start to recover and you'd uh, probably be out of it by about 15,000 feet so um, that's indicative of the effect of shock waves on that aircraft uh, I subsequently flew the Hawker Hunter which was nominally supersonic uh, and had a much more swept wing. Yep. But you, uh, when I say it was supersonic, you still had to be pretty determined and push the thing forward in a, in a steep dive to get it up to that sort of speed. Right, right. The ven venom uh, aerobatically or in handling was pretty much the same as any other uh, uh, jet aircraft, similar to the, the Vampire. Probably the main difference for the pilot was that it had a spring-controlled aileron system, which was intended by the manufacturer to uh, stop the pilot overstressing the wings, but it did mean that you only had a pretty loose aileron control. And I think that was uh, rectified in the Mark IV version, but uh, we only had the Mark I. Okay. Um, Bringing the aircraft into land, no great problems there, but you had to be a little careful with those uh, thin wheels that we had. And also the, the ghost engine was one of those early ones with a uh, uh, centrifugal compressor and having got it down near idling RPM, it took a long time for it to accelerate up to a real power again. So as you were coming into land and throttle fully off, if you, uh, for any reason, decided you had to go around, uh, it took a long time before the aircraft would uh, do anything about it. And having got it on the runway, the, uh, the braking system was very poor. Uh, the normal method of braking was to use aerodynamic braking, that is, as the speed slowed, keep the, the spec stick coming back and use the aerodynamic surfaces on the aircraft to slow the aircraft down. And then uh, uh, when you got it slow enough, drop the nose wheel and start using the brakes. But you couldn't use the brakes at a high speed. They wouldn't take it. Oh, wow. OK. So what happened on that fateful day when you ended up ejecting? What was the lead up and what were you doing? OK. Well, we're talking about the 3rd of July, 1957. So I had been there only a few months. Um, the particular flight was authorized for me just to go and um, practice uh, general handling of the aircraft at my own discretion. And I had done that for most of the one hour that was authorized, as I recall it. Um, and toward the end of that time, when I don't think there would have been fuel left in the fuel tanks, um, I at attempted a practice of a low-level um, aerobatic exhibition, but I was using 20,000 feet as my uh, uh, simulated ground level. And so uh, at that height, both the engine power and the aerodynamic performance are much reduced. And uh, obviously I was asking too much of the aircraft and uh, as I was getting through the sequence, it just uh, could not respond to what I was demanding of it. Yeah. And I lost control. 
there was nothing particularly unusual about that. But I found myself uh, the next thing in the early stages of a spin. Okay. Now, uh, that had no uh, great concern in me, but intentional of the spinning of the, of the venom was prohibited. I'm not sure why, but I assume it would have been something to do with the gyroscopic effect uh, of those tip tanks. But anyway, there it was uh, starting in a spin. And so I used standard spin recovery, which is simply to apply full opposite rudder to the spin, pause, move the stick progressively forward until the spinning stopped, centralize everything, and then roll the aircraft uh, level, pull it out of the dive and apply power. Well, I tried that the first time it didn't, the aircraft didn't respond at all. And I tried it twice more carefully and still I was getting no response from the aircraft. It was uh, getting itself firmly established in the spin. And remember, I'd never spun the Venom, but uh, the spin was very similar to the Vampire in that it was in a very steep nose down attitude, uh, almost vertical. Um, so as the spinning progressed uh, and I couldn't control it, I think the next thing that I noted was what I subsequently learned is called medically nystagmus. It's an effect on the eyes whereby continued rotation causes them to flick sideways and they would flick to a portion on the horizon, stay there until it was no longer possible to hold that position, then flick around right the other way to the hard edge. And so they'd flick um, as the aircraft was rotating. I couldn't um, control my eyes, and so I couldn't uh, read the instrument panel. Everything was blurred with my eyes flicking across it. Uh, the next thing that I noted was that uh, a red haze had developed across my eyes, and that is known as reading out. It's the opposite of a blackout, which is fairly familiar to most. The blackout, of course, being positive G, causing brain uh, blood to flow away from the brain. Uh, and eventually you'd lose consciousness. Well, with the red out, which is, uh, comes with uh, being inverted and too much blood flowing into the head, then the eyes get more blood than they need. And so you tend to lose um, uh, visual ability and everything slowly disappears into a red haze. Right. And it was after this had happened that it all of a sudden occurred to me that reading out implied that I must be inverted. Um, and then when I looked down at the attitude of the aircraft again, I could see enough to see that, yes, the nose had gone beyond the vertical. I was uh, actually in an inverted spin. Now, I knew nothing about inverted spins, and I think it's uh, appropriate that I digress a little here. Yeah. Um, the three aircraft, or the, all the training aircraft that I have already mentioned, uh, were capable of being spun. And it was just a normal exercise in those to bring the aircraft back toward the stall, then apply full rudder in the direction you wanted to spin and bring the stick hard back and the aircraft would spin. And you were there sitting with a full rudder applied, stick hard back, until you decided to get out of that spin, in which case you put on that full opposite rudder, stick going forward, blah, blah. Um, that was what I did in the Venom. And that is what I was told to do in the pilot's notes when I subsequently reviewed them. The pilot's notes indicated that uh, while one could not intentionally spin the venom, it should respond normally. 
and that there was one sentence that said if you got into an inverted spin, uh, then normal spin recovery uh, should bring it out. And uh, that, in at least part, was quite wrong. Inverted spins were something that the likes of me, just a young squadron pilot, had never come across. We'd never been trained on it, and I knew nothing about it. And what I'm about to say uh, then became clear after the event with a lot of sitting down with a model and uh, working it all out with the uh, Court of Inquiry. But the, the spin that I was accustomed to in any of those other aircraft, I had put it in myself and I was sitting there with full rudder applied in the direction of spin and the stick hard back. But with this uh, situation, uh, the aircraft was just gone into a spin with the controls more or less in the, uh, the central position. And so I had didn't have that initial reference. Now, when you're spinning, and particularly in the vamp and the venom, the role of the aircraft is by far the dominant visual impression, and any yaw that you can see down at the nose was uh, minimal. And so, as far as I was concerned, a roll to the right meant that the aircraft was spinning to the right, yeah. and therefore I had to put on left rudder. Well, I did that on each of those occasions when I tried to get out of the spin, and the rudder never felt right. It was always snatching, which I'd never found before. It was only after um, we... Uh, talk, worked on the, the inverted spin that we worked out that in an inverted spin roll and your are opposed and so what I should have done knowing that the spin was uh, inverted was to put on rudder uh, in the same direction as the roll which was quite foreign to me but nevertheless having got to the stage of being well established in the spin and having worked out that it must be inverted and I didn't know what to do. So I tried putting on full rudder into the spin and that at least felt right. I was getting aerodynamic pressure on the rudder, which is what I expected. Yep. So I maintained that rudder position and moved the stick around fore and aft and probably at one point anyway in that process, I did hit the right combination. But it didn't have any effect, either because I didn't hold it long enough or because the aircraft by now was uh, too well established to come out of the spin. And so the spin kept going. And I found myself in that situation now where I had run out of things that I could think of to do. I couldn't see, I couldn't uh, um, read the altimeter to tell me how high I was above the ground. And I wasn't seeing very well at all anyway. There was a red haze. Yeah. And subsequently, I'm quite sure that disorientation was uh, having its effect. But I eventually decided to do what I had previously decided I would never do, and that is to eject. And the reason I decided that is because I am tall. Um, as I recall it, my thigh length is 27 inches and the manufacturer put a limit of 25 on it. Oh. And in those days, there was no such thing as a medical check to, to check these sorts of things out. And although I knew about it from reading the pilot's notes, I, uh, I kept very quiet about it. Yeah. I had simply decided I would never use the ejection seat, but here it was. Uh, I had decided to use it. Now, the first thing you had to do was to get rid of the canopy. And I failed to do one of two things that you have to do. The first one is to release the seal, the pressure of the seal around the canopy. And the second one is to pull a lever, which uh, breaks all the latches. Uh, I forgot about the seal. I pulled that lever until I think I pulled it right off the frame of the aircraft, but the latches didn't uh, pull out. Yeah. 
and the uh, the canopy remained firmly on, and so I was now committed to ejecting through the canopy. So I got into the correct position for ejection, which is feet back toward the seat, knees together, spine straight, head up, elbows in, and the seat was operated from a handle above the pilot's head, above and behind, which you pull forward and down with the downward movement, pulling a blind over one's face. Well, I did this, and having gone through the procedure, nothing happened. Um, I then found through the red haze that in fact I had pulled the radio communication cord which was thrown out above my head by the negative G and so I went through the whole process again got the right handle this time pulled it out and down and nothing happened oh. <laughs> um, by this stage panic was starting to set in and I did what I should not have done that is, I bunted my head forward to try and see if I could make that cord move any further. And yes, that did what was required and the seat fired. And the next thing I knew was that the seat had separated, that I was in the parachute about 5,000 feet and I could see the aircraft spinning below very definitely inverted and the spin by now pretty flat so the nose was well past the vertical yeah and i simply watched the aircraft continue spinning into the jungle um, the aircraft incidentally this whole performance happened fairly near a western town by name of batupahat and near there are pineapple plantations before you hit the uh, the jungle I was over the jungle, but the wind drifted me toward a pineapple plantation. And uh, the, the actual landing didn't worry me because I'd done a uh, parachute course at Abington in England and had done four practice jumps. Okay. So uh, I hit the ground without to any problem and was fed a pineapple by the locals. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think probably I should mention at the stage that uh, quite apart from my fear of um, using the ejection seat, that fear should have been increased because going through the canopy meant that uh, there was still more metal around the front uh, where my knees were going to pass. Yeah. And so uh, my knees must have become pretty damn close to uh, whatever metal there was up front there, but, uh, but I got past it all right. Another thing was that one should not eject inverted because no matter how tight you've got the straps done up, uh, there will inevitably be a small gap between your backside and the seat. And so when the seat is fired, the explosive charge, and it is, a, it is a explosion that set it off in the seat that I was using, not a rocket. Oh, right, okay. Uh, and the explosion sends the seat up so that by the time it uh, hits your backside, if you're inverted, uh, it puts a lot of strain on the back. I probably got away with that because the seat, um, I think I'm right here, uh, could either have one or two cartridges. Uh, one cartridge for an aircraft like the Venom, which didn't have anything significant by way of a rudder behind the pilot, and two cartridges if you were on something like a Hunter, where you had to get clear over the, uh, quite a large rudder. Yeah. So I think, I, well, I'm sure I only had one cartridge, which would have given a lesser acceleration, and so I'm quite sure that um, that saved me from significant back damage. And it would also probably uh, uh, assist me because, as I said, I bunted my head forward. The last thing you should do in an ejection seat, but I got away with it. So probably that was because of the uh, the low charge in the seat.
Right. And finally, of course, the aircraft was spinning inverted in a fairly flat attitude and ejecting downward. I was ejecting down into the path of the aircraft. Um, well, in the seat and with a blind in front of my face, I have no idea how close I came to the aircraft. The, the next thing I knew, I was in the parachute. But uh, <laughs> but the, the danger was obviously there of uh, the, the uh, seat colliding with the aircraft. Yeah, yeah. But I got I got away with it. Wow, that's uh, amazing. <laughs> about the only other thing with uh, mentioning, I guess, is that being now established in a uh, pineapple plantation, I looked for what I knew should be in my uh, package that went with the parachute for uh, signal flares in case somebody came looking for me and I couldn't find any. They were there apparently, but I couldn't find them. And I guess once again, uh, this is disorientation having its effect. Yeah. But uh, when the aircraft came overhead, uh, I couldn't use, well, I didn't have the signal flares, but uh, by a method, and I don't recall what, a helicopter eventually turned up Okay. And took took me back to Tanga. Wow. So, w were you injured at all uh, in any way, or w were you absolutely fine when you landed? Very little. Uh, checked over by the medical people, obviously after that, and for two or three days, I had a, a sore neck. Yeah. But um, uh, it was only about three days later, I think, that uh, that I was back in the air. It's a uh, it should perhaps um, also be mentioned that this happened in July 1957, yeah. and we haven't discussed the situation in Malaya at all, but it was very much out of bounds. One couldn't drive in it at the time, uh, with the, uh, the communist terrorists being uh, in control of the, uh, the area. Oh, wow. Uh, but right toward the end of my time there, they had become sufficiently weak that it was possible to drive up. And so I did just that with the intention of saying uh, thank you to the people who had looked after me. Yeah. And I eventually uh, found my way there, found the right people. Uh, and I knew that the Court of Inquiry uh, had already found the aircraft in the, in the jungle upside down as, as expected, yeah. but um, they could never find the ejection seat. But I found the ejection seat that was sitting in the front garden of the head man being <laughs> used as a throne. <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> wow. So um, with the... Uh, with the seat, do you remember what type of seat it was? It was a Martin Baker, was it, yes, would it have been a Mark, Mark II seat or something? Uh, I couldn't tell you. It was certainly Martin Baker. Um, uh, you would have to do a bit of research into the Venom to find out what sort of seat that it had. And I can't tell you that. No, yeah, no problem. I will. Um, now, had you had... Do you, do you think you had had adequate training beforehand about ejections? Was there, did you have enough knowledge about ejecting from your training? Yes. Um, I was in no doubt at any stage as to what I should do. Yeah. Um, the, at one stage, and I'd have to cast back again, I think it was back in New Zealand, um, I had sat in a trainer, a, a ejection seat trainer, uh, and that then fired, you got in the right position and then fired you on springs up, uh, up a ramp. Yep. So uh, that uh, was, I've no doubt, the, the right and proper training for being uh, able to eject. So okay. the answer is yes, I knew exactly what I should be doing, but I didn't always do it. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so um, afterwards, um, you've mentioned there was a court of inquiry. Was what was the finding of that? Was it just um, happenstance, or I've never known. Um, they, like I, were never able to work out 
exactly what had happened to the aircraft. At one stage, there was the thought that one um, air brake had come out and not the other, but I, but I don't think that was the case. I don't think it uh, eventually was found that way. The Court of Inquiry, of course, it was a British aircraft that we were flying. Uh, we're under uh, British command, and so it was a British Court of Inquiry. Right. Um, and so the Court of Inquiry findings would have gone to uh, Great Britain somewhere or other, and no, I've never, I have never seen uh, what they said about it. All right, okay. So w when you uh, were picked up by the helicopter, you were taken to hospital, um, once you were released, back to the squadron what was the atmosphere like on the squadron after you'd come back um i guess everybody was pretty happy that you had survived um oh i, I don't recall very much about that i think it was regarded as a um just one of those things which happened when when i speak about the venom we were flying the mark one it was a British-owned aircraft, and there were some 350 of these Mark Ones that were made. Yeah. And then they were subsequently superseded by a later version, uh, and certainly Number 60 Squadron uh, on the other side of the airfield had the Mark IV. Yeah. Uh, 14 Squadron was the last squadron that existed that uh, was flying the Mark One. And so um, there was always a plentiful supply of Mark I aircraft, uh, Mark I uh, aircraft, yes, Venoms, which uh, had probably been in squadron service elsewhere, and so they were available to us. Yep. Now, we had a fairly high accident rate on uh, reflection. Uh, there was quite a lot that... Um, uh, went wrong for one reason or another. And one of the things that uh, was wrong about the Venom was that it had a new type of construction of, of the, the metal surfaces on the wing. Yeah. Uh, exactly why that was uh, done, of course, I don't know. But this was the very early days of uh, high-speed jet flying. And uh, uh, it turned out that uh, the aircraft were very susceptible to metal fatigue. Okay. And indeed, the metal would crystallise uh, after being um, getting a certain number of flying hours up and being subjected to the sort of uh, um, turbulence that we had in the tropical area. Right. And so eventually it was decided that the venom would be life expired at 750 hours, which is very low if you could come and think of it. Yes. And so a great number of the aircraft that we flew were just being get to 750 hours and on, on the heap they go. All right. We had an establishment of 16 Venoms and uh, two Vampire T-11s, uh, which were the uh, uh, twin seat ones. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we've just managed to keep our 16 Venoms going from the, the supply available from the UK. So... The, uh, the answer to your question is simply that retiring venoms or having accidents in them was a fairly normal occurrence and it didn't, uh, my ejection didn't occasion anything undue by way of, uh, of reaction as, as I recall it. Okay, okay. Um, did the squadron there, uh, the, the... RZF squadron have their own armourers and their own parachute packers uh, doing your seats, or yes, they... that was all that was all done by our own squadron people, all New Zealanders who were uh, doing the thing. And so the uh, the seats were very well serviced, well placed in the aircraft, and it worked exactly as advertised. Right, fantastic. D did you, um, or can you tell us a little bit about Mike Palmer's ejection, which was a couple of months before yours? He he's no longer with us to tell his story yeah. well um, i i can't tell you very much but it was a very much a standard situation mike was down around 1000 feet returning to tanger uh, when his engine stopped 
Right. And he was over the Straits of Johor at the time, which is the waterway between Singapore and the south coast of Malaya, as it was. Yeah. And Mike had on his wingtip another Venom uh, and piloted by Jeff Rod, and uh, Jeff saw it all happen. And when Mike had the engine failure, uh, there was never an occasion where the engine physically gave trouble that I'm aware of. And I, uh, I believe Mike must have simply run out of fuel for whatever reason. And okay. I don't know what that reason was. Yeah. Um, then Jeff saw him try to relight it on, on a couple of occasions. And then with the aircraft already pretty low and slowing down, Mike had to get out of it. Uh, he got rid of the canopy in textbook fashion and uh, fired the seat. But Jeff then commented that uh, the seat just did not deploy the parachute. Oh. And he was surprised. He thought the seat was going to go into the water with the parachute still in it. But just at what to him was the last moment, the uh, parachute deployed, the seat fell away, and uh, Mike swung two or three times and went straight into the water. And he was picked up by a boat. Gosh, that's that's close. <laughs> so that was a, a relatively straightforward one. Okay, okay, um, yeah, that's and there were only the two ejections of RNZ venoms, you, you and Mike, wasn't there? There were no others. Correct. Yeah. 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 yeah very interesting. Um, you've mentioned the uh, twin the two-seat uh, vampires that you had on the squadron, did they have ejection seats in them? They didn't have an ejection seat in the vampire. Okay. Uh, and uh, uh, they were just used for whatever training and for pilots to practice instrument flying uh, with a hood on and that sort of thing. But, uh, right. And, and I think one also started off with uh, two or three flights and that to learn about the local area because right. the Venom just had a... Uh, a single seat and so the first time you flew it uh, uh, was simply a matter of what you'd been told about it what you read in a book go away and fly it yeah yeah so were they the two-seat vampires were they um a bit different to fly from the single seat vampire or the venom or were they much the same apart much from that much the same as far as we in singapore were concerned of course they were a uh, a, a if I can use the word inferior aircraft, in that they were quite slow. Yeah. Um, they uh, took a long time to get to altitude, and uh, we didn't ever do anything in the vampires with the uh, the venoms. Of course, we were there to do ground attack against the uh, what we call the CTs, the communist terrorists in the jungle, yeah. and um, the venom would generally attack the CPTs with uh, two 1,000-pound bombs aboard. Um, yeah, but it also could carry uh, three-inch rockets and 20-millimeter right. cannon. And uh, uh, the, the normal method of attacking the CTs was uh, because we had no navigation aids of any sort in the aircraft, uh, was to rendezvous at a, uh, an agreed point with the army, the army flying uh, Oster marker aircraft. Yeah. And then at an agreed time, about 90, or should I say 90 seconds before the agreed time, the Oster would drop a spoke flare into the jungle on top of where he wanted the bombs to go. And about 90 seconds later, the uh, Venoms would get over there and drop their bombs onto the flare. Um, that was the normal way of uh, using the venom to attack the CTs, but uh, there would occasionally also be uh, demands would come in for a quick response to something which was uh, had become known to the people on the ground, and in which case we would use the uh, the rockets and uh, cannon, which were probably not effective in any way at killing people. Yeah. 
but they uh, certainly got the attention, apparently, where we learn from captured CTs. Uh, they certainly got the attention of the people on the ground, and that would be the main effect of the aircraft uh, operations against the CT, as far as I'm concerned, that um, we had a big effect on the morale of those people in the jungle. They were always very fearful of something coming from the skies and not having any warning that it was coming. All right. Okay. So how many strikes did you uh, did, did you do yourself? Was it very busy? Were you doing it every day sort of thing? or No. The um, just covering the, uh, that the the Malayan Communist Party started off way back in uh, sometime in the late 1920s, I think. Yeah. And they went into the jungle and they were established as terrorists in the jungle when World War II started. Yeah. And you recall that uh, fairly quickly the Japanese came down into. Uh, Malaya and then into Singapore and when they did that a number of Brits uh, rather than attempting to get out went into the uh, jungle and joined up with the communists and at the time then they just became a joint anti-Japanese group but then after the war the British uh, departed that and uh, the British once again became the uh, the government of Malaya and the CTs, uh, the Malayan Communist Party, uh, reverted to being intent upon uh, disrupting and getting rid of the British colonial power and establishing a communist government in Malaya. Um, Incidentally, that uh, the actual establishment of a new government in Malaya occurred in uh, late 1957, November, I think, uh, an event called Merdeka. And from then on, Merdeka, uh, Malaya was under its own uh, government. And the the emergency, as so-called as by the British, uh, against the CTs lasted from uh, 1948 for 12 years through to 1960. And so we were there in the Venoms from 55 to 58. By then, the CTs had reached their peak performance and around 1950, they were on the back burner by 1955 when we arrived. They were down to about half their number, there were, uh, four or five thousand, I think. And then they had to contend with um, political activity, particularly all the villages in, on Malaya were ringed with barbed wire. They all had a curfew on them and guards, and so it was very difficult for the CTs to obtain support, food and whatever, from the people uh, who were living in kampongs in the jungle. Then there was the uh, the British Army, uh, supported by other Commonwealth armies who uh, were much outnumbered the CTs, and then there were we dropping things from the air. So all this led to the CTs uh, becoming less and less intent upon what they were trying to do. Uh, As I said, the the Malayan government was formed in 1957. And finally, by 1960, um, the CTs had given up. They all the time had been led by a fellow by the name of Chin Ping. And he, with his followers, had by now moved up into Thailand and operated on the border near Malaya. They still made things rough for the Malayans. Uh, they still had, the Malayans still had to keep guards up there. Yeah. But uh, the CTs no longer had a sway and a, a general hold on the, uh, the main part of the peninsula. Okay, okay. So was all you were flying over the peninsula or did you also uh, have missions uh, or patrols or operations over Borneo as well? 
Um, no, I don't think we ever got to to Borneo or to Indonesia, though both of them were fairly close. Yeah. Um, we uh, operated continuously over Malaya and uh, the Singapore area. Yeah. And we were uh, deployed occasionally to other places. Um, and I'm thinking particularly of Bangkok, uh, uh, where we went for a CETO exercise. Yeah. But uh, no, normally our flying was above, above the Malayan jungle. Okay, okay. Well, um, even though it's been 64 years, uh, your memory of this event is amazing. It's it's obviously so clear still in your memory, which is, uh, one. it must be one of those things you'll never forget. Yes, that would be the case. And I, I can only hope that what I have uh, said to you is an accurate memory, but it won't be very far wrong anyway. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely amazing. Well, thank you very much for, for letting us hear your story. It's, uh, it's incredible. Okay, glad to have been of help. Thank you, Dave. Thank you. I really appreciate it. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. 